Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. So let me just reiterate this. I know this is new to you guys. It's kind of a campaign we're doing. I don't even call it a campaign. It is an act of worship we are doing for 60 days, an intentional act of worship. The 60, whoop, that's upside down. The 60-60-60 challenge. And what is the 60-60-60 challenge? Just let me reiterate again. It starts this Wednesday, February the 1st. And we're gonna go from February the 1st to March the 31st, which is Easter Sunday. 60 days. Every waking hour of your day, every hour on the hour, the request is that you stop for 60 seconds. Can you spare 60 seconds out of an hour for God? So every hour, I don't know how you're gonna alert yourself what you will do with technology today, it is so easy to just set an alert during your waking hours to say, just to remind you. After 60 days, it more than likely will have become a habit. Why are we challenging you to do this? I wouldn't challenge you to do something that I wasn't challenged to do myself. And here's the reason why I feel that we need to do this as the body of Christ. Can you imagine what it would be like to have a God consciousness every waking moment of your day? That doesn't mean that you're doing this all day long, okay? But that you were aware of God with you and around you every single waking moment of your day. How would that change your behavior? How would that change the decisions you make? How would that change how you respond to people? How would it change how you think about people, those secret thoughts? I think it would make a significant difference. I think it could be the point at which God's Holy Spirit floods this body of Christ in a way that maybe this congregation has never seen. Maybe in a way that would be the epicenter of a God quake that could go out from this place into the various locations each and every one of us go, live, dwell, play with a sense of God's presence with us, in us, and around us. So here's the challenge. Every hour on the hour for every waking hour of your day for 60 days. Take 60 seconds to do this. Lord, wherever you are. You don't have to pray it out loud. He can hear your thoughts, all right? Lord, you are good, you are love, and I thank you for your blessings. I welcome you into this next hour because I know you are worthy not only to be praised, but you are worthy to be followed. And so in this next hour, help me to see you. I welcome you into my work and into these moments with me. In Jesus' name. You you don't have to have a scripted prayer. It could just take a moment to thank God for who he is and welcome him into that next hour. 
for 60 days every hour of the day. And if you're feeling skippy, I guess you could have yourself woken up in the middle of the night. I'm not challenging you to do that, just every waking hour, okay? If you are willing to commit to that, we have cards that you can sign up with, or you could just, you probably notice the boards in the entryway if you came in that way. If you didn't, check them out before you leave. You could just put your initials and say, I'm in, or I'm willing to do this, and just put your initials, you can put your name, whatever you want to do. It's just a public commitment. Uh, I think that's not a bad thing to do, okay? All right, my shameless plug is done. We're closing up a series today on goodness. Now, goodness is our theme for the whole year, but this month has been specifically two sides of the same coin, looking at goodness as being and doing, okay? You cannot separate the one from the other. Now, you can, and our culture and the rest of the world has done this. You can do good without being good, but you cannot be good and not do good. Do you catch what I'm saying? There are a lot of people that do a lot of good things, but deep inside are not really good in their very nature. Why is that? Because we believe as image bearers of the one true God of heaven and earth that we are to reflect the goodness of God through our lives, and we cannot do that apart from the Holy Spirit taking residence in this body. How does that happen? That happens first, First, through faith and belief in Jesus Christ as God's one and only Son. That he is God's Son and that God raised him from the dead. And that in him there is life everlasting. That is the first step. The next is in submitting to his will, his ways, in every aspect of your life and welcoming the Holy Spirit to take residence in you. Do you do it perfectly beyond that point? No. I mean, I wish we could. That's why God gives us this thing called grace. You familiar with what grace is? Grace is being given something we do not deserve in a good way. It's being extended this act of mercy when we all stand really in condemnation because of the sin of our own life. But it's in God's goodness that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but receive everlasting life. That is the good news. But we treat it like it's meh news. We, we have, let's be honest. In the churches across our country today, when we hear that, because we've heard it so often, it becomes background noise. But do you realize the power in those words from Jesus to Nicodemus? For God loved the world so much. How much did he love the world? A bunch. And God's bunch is greater than our bunch. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. Who was his son again? How do we know that? Well, we have in our Gospels accounts of the birth of Christ, of the birth of Jesus. You can say, well, it's a fictional book. Why should I believe a fictional book? Can I ask you what makes you think it's fictional? 
See, a lot of people make accusations against faith and against Christianity and against the Bible when they've never really pushed in to know if it's fiction or not. I used to think, actually, I grew up in the church, but I've told you before, when I got to college to study the ministry is when the foundations of my faith got shaken. When I studied ministry and the Bible, I'd grown up in Sunday school, VBS, you name it. When the doors were open, my mom and I were there from age 11 on. It was a part of our life. But it wasn't until I got to college to actually study the Word of God that I had everything I had been raised with challenged. Well, that doesn't seem right. You grew up in the church, and then you got to college to study ministry, and then you got challenged? Yes, because it's an epidemic and a problem within our congregations that we skirt the main issues and deal with fluff. And the reason I'm not, it's a soapbox for me, because I don't know why I wasn't taught the hard things of truth and of faith growing up in my youth group. In the church, in the services, revivals, we call them revivals, it's just really a long week of preaching (laughs) back when I was a kid. If it was truly revival, something would have changed, right? Um, But I can remember, I am way off on a tangent, I haven't gotten into the introduction, please forgive me, I'll get to this in just a second, we'll make it good, all right? But I'm truly desirous of, of a move of God. I would, I would like to think you are too. But see, here's the thing. I don't know if we know what a move of God actually looks like. We can read about, if you're a student of history and some of you are like, oh, history, don't even go there. I wasn't either until I started studying the word of God. And then I started studying world history to see, all right, tell me how this works out in the Old Testament if I'm looking at secular culture, historical accounts, and you see so many cross sections there, you're like, oh, I see some pieces coming together. Anyway, you look through all of that and you read the accounts of not only in the Bible, but the great revivals in the last 2,000 years. Do you know how they started? They started somebody running around going, hootly, hootly, hoo. No, they started through prayer. People who were truly so desperate for a move of God that they didn't know where else to go but on their knees. Here's my challenge today. If you want to see the true goodness of God in humanity, you have to look to the one who was truly good. Do you remember the guy who comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And before answering any question, he says, why do you call me good? There is no one good but the Father. You see, what Jesus is doing in that moment is he's challenging the guy who came to him. Do you really think I'm good? Are you buttering me up? How often do we go to God in prayer to butter him up? We say cute things to him to try to butter him up to hear our prayers so that he'll answer in the way we want him to. 
I mean, I don't know. I've done that before. That if I, if I just say the right words in the right way and I call him almighty, glorious God, almighty Father, righteous, holy, if I give him all the titles, then he'll hear me more than if I didn't say all those things. Do you know what the psalmist in the Old Testament tells us? A broken and a contrite heart, the Lord your God will not despise. And that's what God hears. He doesn't need buttering up, he just needs your heart. All right, so where do I go from here? Amen. So here's the thing. We've been looking at the goodness of God's creation, and there's a crowning moment in in God's creative story in Genesis 1 and 2 that stands above the rest. Now, what you will hear in our culture and in the world is that humans are the least. We see this cult And please hear me on this because I'm not saying this the way it has been so politicized. There's a cult of environmentalism to where the creation is the worshipped entity rather than the creator. And when we read read Romans chapter 1 again, and God, excuse me, Abraham, Paul is saying, listen, What people did, there has been no excuse not to believe in the God of heaven. Why? Because of everything that has ever been created. But the problem started, and I'm paraphrasing Paul in Romans 1, the problem started when the created humans began to worship the creation rather than the creator. They worship the sun, the moon, the stars, the creatures that crawl on earth. The beasts of the air and of the field. And so they traded a worship for Yahweh for a worship of those things that wither and fade and die over time. And so what does it say? Paul says he, God got to the point where he said he turned them over to their own sinful ways. And they began to think up even more ways to sin against God. They created and invented new ways to sin is what he's saying. Does that happen today? (laughs) Of course it does. You can't read the paper. I mean, the paper is rarely, it rarely is there any good news in the paper, even the Butler Eagle. But I can read the Butler Eagle from time to time here in Butler, Pennsylvania and find ways. I'm like, are you serious? I- I'm sorry. What? what? Who does? Who would even think of doing something? And that's just in Butler. Who would even think of doing something like that? The crowning achievement of God's creation After which, he looked over all that he created and said, it is very good. The crowning achievement was humanity. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Now that doesn't give us cause to go around and strut our stuff and abuse God's creation and do whatever the heck we please. No, we are under the submission of God who is the authority, but now has given us authority 
to be stewards of all that he's entrusted to us. Everything God created, he said, I want you to take care of for me, okay? Because you are my image bearers. So let's look at that this morning. Genesis 1, starting with verse 20, uh, 26, yeah. Then God said, let us make human beings in our own image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth, and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. Now, a different sermon for a different time, but you probably noticed some plural language. Let us. Who is the let us God is talking about? There are so many scholarly debates on this. I don't want to get into too many of them with you right now, but the reality is he's saying let us, God and the angelic beings, or there's another thought from many scholars that is let us is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I tend to lean more toward that understanding because God is a plurality of persons in one essence. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he says, let us make human beings in our own image. To be created in the image of God is to be created in his whole image, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so what does he go on to do? So verse 27, God created human beings in his own image. Now your verse of scripture may be in the old traditional version where man was actually synonymous for humanity or mankind, okay? This version, the New Living Translation, has taken the liberty to give us a broader perspective in our current day context that the word for human beings was ha-adam in Hebrew, Adam, okay? Adam can be one individual or it can be also humanity or humans. Again, I don't mean to make this a classroom. The reality is I don't want us to get confused with what's going on here. So what the New Living Translation does is it breaks it down into language we can understand since we don't know the Hebrew, all right? So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We don't like to hear that. This is where we like to get into revisionist um, theology. And I promise you, it happens in seminaries all across this nation. But I digress. Verse 28, then God blessed them, the first humans, and said, be fruitful and multiply. We love that part. <laughs> we need to do it in the right context by which God had ordained the first man and the first woman to procreate and bring forth other humans. But there is a way to do that that is good and glorifies God. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Some versions say subdue it. Some versions say reign over it, which goes into the next part of this. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all of the fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground, and everything that has life. And that's what happened. 
Do you see a food chain in this? There is not a hierarchical scale of food chain. Eat or be eaten. Do you see any of that anywhere? The lion is not the king of the jungle yet. And humans, though given authority over all of creation, the living creatures, if you will, haven't been given them to eat, but to care for, to tend, and to watch over, to govern. I'm not advocating veganism or anything of the sort. All I'm just saying is, because death had not entered the world, nothing died. You say, well, plants died. Plants were regenerative. That's why you have the seed stuff. I mean, plants are not humans, animals, or other creatures. We can get into the debate on that. I know some people, oh, we'll just get to it. I'm digressing even more. (laughs) Then God looked over all that he had made and he said, it is very good. And evening passed and morning came marking the sixth day. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested from all of his work. Or another way to translate that would be he ceased from his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all of his work of creation. Did God rest indefinitely? Yes. And we were to join him in that rest on the seventh day. Now, rest does not mean no work. Rest can mean no work, but the rest we're talking about here is is this overarching peace and tranquility that there is no other thing that necessarily needs to be done except what God had already mandated to be fruitful, multiply, to govern the earth. in a state of rest, peace, and tranquility. In all of the goodness of God and what he had created, as his good image bearers, we are to be the ones who live eternally in his rest. And guess what happens? We decide God's best isn't good enough for us, as we often do as human beings, and we try to search for something better than God's best. And when we do that, we not only come to the end of, of what God said is good, we actually step into what God says is not good. Thus setting in motion this thing called sin and death, which we will talk about next month. So humans, as the image bearers of God, should reflect the goodness of God completely. If we carry the image of God in our person, then we should be reflecting the image of God to the rest of the world. Now, here's the key. All people are image bearers of God. All people have always been image bearers of God. But when sin entered the world, that image became distorted. And I think I've used this analogy for you in this setting before. It's like, you know those mirrors you hang on the back of your door? Ladies, you probably know this, when you're fixing your hair and all that stuff. And you got these huge full-length mirrors. Now imagine somebody has hit that mirror 
it is shattered, but it's still in the frame. And when you look, you see your image, but it is now broken into a million different pieces. You can make out who you are somewhat, but you don't see it with full clarity. That's what happened when sin entered the world. The only way to restore the mirror back to the perfect quality it was is to receive Christ. When Christ comes into your life, the mirror is fixed. The image and the reflection of him should come through as light to the rest of the world around us. So what does it mean to be created in the image of God? You're saying, okay, well, God is the image of God. What is that? So what does God look like? Well, we are told in John chapter 4, God is spirit. So what does the spirit look like? And how, do we, how are we, so what is that even, and if, so we start to really snowball into all of these wonderful questions about what the image of God is. There's a word in Latin that this had come to be known as, and it's called the Imago Dei. Imago Dei, or the image of God. Genesis 1.27, <clears throat> when it talks about the Imago Dei, we are talking about the image of God in humanity. So let's look at that verse again. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created him. So God is male and female, he is the first non-binary gender. God is genderless. God is God. But God, in his holiness and goodness, created male and female, separate, but the same. Okay? There are very unique characteristics between male and female. Do you know that God has those very unique characteristics in his whole person? That is why when you go on down into Genesis chapter 2, the other part of the creation story, that when God saw that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, he put Adam into a deep sleep and he took a piece of bone and flesh from Adam's side to create the woman. So Adam would no longer be alone. And when Adam woke up and he saw this woman... He said, she is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He is signifying the uniqueness, but also the similarity of who he is with what he sees that God has created from his own flesh. And what does it say at the end of chapter 2? That a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave or cling to his wife, and the two shall become what? Thus reflecting the image of God in the unity of man and woman together in holy matrimony. Amen. But we've tossed that aside as if it's something that's deplorable as well. Another sermon for another time, just to make people mad. So God created human beings in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And when they are joined together, they are to reflect the perfect image of God. What God has joined together, let what? No one separate. 
In an article in Christianity.com, it's explained that the term Imago Dei is a theological term applied uniquely to humans, hear me on this, which denotes a symbolic relation between God and humanity. The term has its roots, again, in Genesis 1:27, wherein God created man in his own image. The scriptural passage does not mean that God is in human form, but rather that humans are in the image of God in their moral, spiritual, and intellectual nature. Thus, humans mirror God's divinity in their ability to actualize the unique qualities with which they have been endowed and which make them different from all other creatures. Rational structure, complete centeredness, creative freedom, a possibility for self-actualization, and the ability for self-transcendence. Now, what does all of that mean? We are unique from the rest of the created order. I don't care how close in the DNA structure we are to an ape or a monkey or a chimpanzee. There are distinct differences within human genome that stand well apart from the ape genome. They are so distinctive, in fact, that we can not only self-actualize, we know that we are transcendent from the rest of the creation. Now, we often use the term transcendent to reference God, but there is a transcendence in regard to humanity, in that we are above the other creatures. Why? Because God has given us charge over them. There is a sense of responsibility by which we were entrusted by the one and true God of all heaven and earth that helps us transcend the rest of the created order. Francis Collins, um, you might know him from the COVID era and working for the NIH. And uh, believe it or not, he's a Christian fella. Uh, he's got some different ways of thinking about biology and those kind of things. But he wrote a book called The Language of God. I read this many years ago. I thought it was extremely intriguing because what he learned on the Human Genome Project. This is, the Human Genome Project is this. It's where they officially, over decades, were able to map the human DNA structure. They figured out the human genome. I mean, this was a monumental thing, to say the least. But in his book, The Language of God, he says, the human genome consists of all the DNA of our species, the hereditary code of life. This newly revealed text was three billion letters long. Okay? The human genome, three billion letters long. And it was written in a strange cryptographic four-letter code. Such is the amazing complexity of the information carried within each cell of the human body that a live reading of the code at a rate of one letter per second would take 31 years, even if reading continued day and night, nonstop, in one cell. Printing these letters out 
in regular font size on normal bond paper and binding them together could result in a tower the height of the Washington Monument. The letters of the DNA molecule in one of your cells, if written out in code in regular font on regular 8.5 by 11 paper, would be a stack of paper as tall as the Washington Monument. For the first time, he writes, on that summer morning, this amazing script carrying within it all of the instructions for building a human being was available to the world. And he says, if you read on in there, how stunned at the design that was imprinted on the human being. You can say, well, there's DNA in other human, or on other creatures as well. Of course there is. Thus, reflecting this designer who put everything together. But the one with which he gave trust over the rest of the creation were the ones who were to bear his image. The first man and the first woman and all those descendants who would come thereafter. Psalm 139 reads like this. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Do you know the psalmist had no clue about the human genome? He had no clue about real anatomy at that point. We're talking some 3,000 plus years ago. <laughs> this is crazy, isn't it? They didn't have radon, they didn't have any kind of microscopes or, or telescopes to talk about the complexity. And he's talking about the human body. And just with what he is able to observe, he realizes how complex he is. Oh, if he could flash forward and be brought to today to see how even more amazing, down to the molecule, God created humanity. Your workmanship is so marvelous, how, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. We can see babies before they're born now. We call them sonograms. And now we have these 4D. You can see these amazing pictures but the psalmist, without even knowing, except seeing the outward appearance of a woman, knows that something is growing in there and that forming is of a human being. Every moment was laid out. Every day of my life was recorded in your book before a single day had passed. How precious are your, think about this, how precious are your thoughts about me? Do you, do you realize God thinks about you? We have become so bogged down with insecurity in our culture that we can't even conceive of a God who thinks about us, much less has created us. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God? They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. The thoughts of God about you outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, <laughs> you're still with me. Our challenge for the next two months. 
Second thing is humans are tasked with governing creation. What does it mean to govern? What does it mean to rule over? What does it mean to subdue? Well, if we are perfect humans reflecting God's perfect image, what do you think God would do with the rest of his creation? Remember, Genesis 1, we read all of the days of creation. Was there anything within the first 25 verses that God said was not good? Everything was good, wasn't it? After every day, he looked over all that he created and saw that it was good. Evening passed, morning came, the next day. So now, in God's good creation, after the sixth day when he created human beings in his own image, guess what happens? He says it's very good, and then he gives them a mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, and then govern the rest of what I've created. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the creatures that crawl and walk on the earth, Take care of them and govern them, subdue them, reign over them. See, what we've done is we've, we've perverted those words. When you think of government, what's the first word that comes to mind? Not good. No matter what side of the aisle, Republican, Democrat, Independent, you name it, you sit on, government makes bad words come to mind. You're like, no, they don't. I love the government. Okay, whatever. (laughs) Most of us are like, ew, you know? When you think of reigning over something, is it positive or negative connotations that come to mind? When you think of subduing something, what comes to mind? Now, we only think in those terms because we live in a fallen and broken world. But flash all the way back to before sin or evil or death or anything into the world. Everything was good. Now, what do you do? Subdue is not evil. Governing is not evil or bad. It doesn't come with bad connotations. Because we have the perfect one who has been in the authority, giving us authority over his creation. And so, if we are perfectly reflecting the image of God in us, then we will govern the way he governs. And if there is no bad stuff in the world, at least before the fall, We're just taking care of it. We don't have to spank another animal for trying to bite another animal because they look tasty. That stuff's not happening. They're eating the plants of the field. And we're eating the fruit of the trees and the grains. Everything is in proper order and balance. And so the work is there for us to do to govern, but the work is easy and good and fruitful, and it is not fraught with difficulty. But what do we see after the fall? When when you read in Genesis 3 and the fall, what does he say to Adam specifically? So you will toil all the rest of the days from the dirt from which you were made, trying to eke by a living. It will produce for you, but it will also produce thistles and thorns. And by the sweat of your brow, you'll be able to make it. It's going to be tough. There was none of that before sin entered the world. 
So what do we do post-sin? We live in a sinful and broken world. What, what would it look like if God's people, truly God's people, not everybody that says they're God's people, but truly the ones who say, yes, I am a believer in Christ Jesus and I would die for him. I'm all in and his life is, or my life is his. What would happen if we were to take seriously the governing aspect of our responsibility as the image bearers of God? How would we treat God's created order? What would we do with what has been entrusted to us even though it is now in its fallen state? Even though, as Paul says in Romans, all of creation groans. Do we just throw our hands in the air and say it's not governable because it's broken? No, we have still been given that mandate. The mandate was never taken away. It's not like God said after Genesis 3, oh well, you can just do whatever you want now. No, God's mandate is still in order. And we are still called to govern and rule over and to take care of even God's fallen creation. Do you know it got so bad in Genesis 6 that all thoughts of human beings were so corrupt and evil that God determined, I need to wipe out every living thing on the land. Genesis 6 is where we get the flood. We get the calling of Noah as the one righteous man and his family members. Noah's to build the ark where all the animals, creatures, he didn't have to go round them up. We are told they came. God put that homing beacon in every one of those creatures to come to the right place at the right time. And so Noah boarded the boat at the right time with all the animals, his family sealed it up, and for nearly a year, they're on this boat as the world floods, as all of life is wiped out. And when they get off the boat, after that year's time, Genesis 9 says this, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he told them, listen to this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. All the animals of the earth and the birds of the sky, all the small animals that scurry along the ground and the fish in the sea will look on you with fear and terror. Do you notice something different from the first account of creation to the second account of repopulation? The animals in the perfectness of the garden were to be governed by Adam and Eve and their descendants. The animals were not afraid of the humans. The humans were not afraid of the animals. And now since the fall and the starting over after the flood, all of the creatures that humans are to govern will live in fear of humans. There's still a brokenness after the flood. I have placed them, he says, in your power. Now, he's not saying I've placed them in your power to abuse, to curse, to beat down. But I've placed them in your power and under your authority. I have given them to you for food just as, just as I have given you grain and vegetables. Do you see a difference from the first created order to the repopulation of the earth? 
So hunters, feel blessed. (laughs) But you must never eat any meat that still has the lifeblood in it. Do you know what that means? Before Before the flood, do you know what people were doing? And people in some pagan cultures did in Jesus' time and still do today? They drink the living blood from a living, or they drink the blood from a living animal. Have you seen those cultures? I was watching, I don't remember what nature channel I was watching, but they hit the artery of a cow and they put the blood and they, it's some cult, because it has all these minerals and iron and all that yummy stuff in it. Now, oh, I, just look it up. Anyway. You're like, you don't have to say it on stage. I'm like, yeah, I do, actually. So, uh, But the lifeblood, the humans had gotten to the point where they were so abusing not only each other, but the created order, they would eat things alive. Like Ozzy Osbourne at a concert. Some of you get that reference. These pagan rituals of taking the lifeblood of another creature and drinking its blood as if to gain the powers of that creature. It's pagan, it's sadistic, it's evil, it's satanic. But humans, humans are the capstone of God's creation. Read with me, or I don't think we have it on the screen, I apologize. Psalm 8. Psalm 8, I love this. Listen to this. O Lord, our God, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength. Jesus uses these, unless you become like one of these little ones, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. He's saying the lips of children speak so much truth that it silences other people. Have have your kids ever silenced you? You're like, where did they get that? In a good way, not a bad way, but in a good way. They are super wise. Verse three, when I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should even think about them? So David, the psalmist who is writing this, what are human beings that you should even care for them? He's, he's laying out in the open expanses at night and picture him gazing up at the night sky. And he probably sees the moon if it's a moonlit night and he sees the stars and the galaxies that just have to be so painted across the night sky that he's now reflective. And he's realizing how small and insignificant he is with regard to the rest of God's creation. And he's stupefied in that moment. Who am I, God, that you even think about me? Have you ever asked that question? I'm one of over how many billions of people on the earth that live right now? Who am I that you could even think? See, we can't even conceive of a God that can think a million thoughts about us at the same time he's thinking a million thoughts about somebody else or even a billion somebody else's. Because our God is so small in our own eyes 
How small is your God? Or dare I ask, how big is your God? Because if your God is only as big as your own conception of him, you're worshiping too small a God. Read the Psalms. You cannot pass up how each of these psalmists would write and see the majesty and the grandeur of everything God had created and then realize how insignificant they are, but that God loves them above all others, above all other created beings. Yet you made them a little lower than God. Some of us read that a little lower than the angels. Did you know the actual Hebrew is Elohim? Do you know what Elohim means? God. It's a term given to God throughout the scripture. Now, there's a term given to other pagan gods as well, which is why when Moses is at the burning bush and the burning bush voice comes out and says, I am the, fa- I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Moses asks again, well, who shall I say is sending me? And then God gives his formal name, Yahweh, I am that I am. I'm no other Elohim, I am the Elohim. And so the psalmist, David, is writing, you made us a little lower than yourselves, but you crowned us with glory and honor. How has God crowned humans with glory and honor? By bearing his image in us. You gave them charge of everything you made putting all things under their authority, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish of the sea. Do you hear echoes of the creation in the psalmist's words? Everything that swims in the ocean currents, Lord. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. We have forgotten who we are. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus as Lord of your life, you are a child of God. You have been given status, not because of anything you've done, but because of everything he's done for you. He's given you the responsibility to do what he does. Jesus even says in his healing ministry to the disciples, you know the things you've seen me do? (laughs) You will do even greater things than I've done. But we don't believe it. Because we don't believe anything about ourselves except all the bad things we've been told we are and the bad things we tell ourselves. Church, church, hear me. When we say God loves you, it's not just off the cuff. It's not just some nice sentiment that we throw out there. To say you are loved by God is the most important and special thing you could be ever told, but it is the most important and special thing you can ever understand. And it will take a lifetime to understand that. And if you haven't started, you need to start now. It's not when you're on your deathbed. It's right now. 
as the capstone of God's creation, as the crowning achievement, having been given glory and honor to reflect the glory and honor of God, what are we doing as a church when we just muddle through a day, kicking rocks and dragging our feet, when we should be the ones who are walking not as proud human beings strutting our stuff, but in all humility reflecting the glory and the honor of God with each and every step we take. Our lives should be reflective of the image of God in everything we do. But we get down on ourselves. We believe the lies of the enemy who says we're no good. You're, not, you're worth less. You're not worth anything. You are actually worth less than anything. Who are you to think that God can love you? Who are you out of billions of people to think that you are significant? What presence do you have on social media? How many likes did you get? How many thumbs up here? Or smiley faces there. The only smiley face and thumb up that I really am concerned to have is the one who created me. Who knit me together in my mother's womb fearfully and wonderfully. And you need to know that full well. Just as much as I do. As our worship team comes forward to close us out today. Rankin Wilmore, in his book, Union with Christ, writes, Jesus not only shows us who God is, he shows us who we as human beings are meant to be. Jesus, the perfect human being. You want to know what the perfect human being looks like? The perfect child of God looks like? The perfect reflection of the image of God looks like? Look none other than to Jesus himself. Jesus is the perfect image of God, not defaced by sin. Philosopher Peter Kraft writes, we are half men, but he is perfect man. We are inhuman humans, he is perfect humanity. We are alienated from ourselves, he is perfectly himself. He is more us than we are. Colossians 1.15 also tells us that in Jesus Christ, the nature of humanity as our creator intended it has been fully revealed this explains why Blaise Pascal once said, not only do we, excuse me, not only do we only know God through Jesus Christ, but we only know ourselves through Jesus Christ. Or as Karl Barth wrote, Jesus is the real man. And what does real man look like? Look at Jesus. What is a human being supposed to be? Jesus reflected what true humanity, reflecting God's image, was supposed to look like. And in Christ, you can be that too. I don't know where you are today, as I've mentioned before, but God is waiting for you to truly take up the calling he has placed right in front of you. Well, I don't know what his calling is, Brandon. Yes, you do. It is to follow him. Well, how and where are you in his word? Are you fully submitted to him in every area of your life? 
Are you truly all in? Because if you're halfway in, you will be as confused as you were the first day. The ones who are truly on fire for Christ have left the past in the past and have stepped into newness of life with Jesus Christ and they have embraced him recklessly and have said, there's no other place I can be but in your presence and I will pursue you wherever that presence goes. God loves you. He created you with purpose and meaning. He gave you life, not just as kind of a, eh, I guess I can make them. He gave you life because he says, I want them. I love them. They are going to be awesome. And maybe you say, I haven't been awesome up to this point. There's always today. You cannot be awesome apart from God. You can be good, but that goodness is temporary. The eternal goodness only comes through a relationship with Christ Jesus or being completely sold out, saying, maybe you're a believer in Christ and you're like, I have been just muddling through. I feel like that lukewarm church. What is it? Laodicea. I'm not hot or cold. I'm just blah. Don't be just blah anymore. Read Psalm 8. Embrace those words of David and live into what he has created you to be. Let's pray. Lord, I was raised as a kid in the church and told that God doesn't create junk. Just a funny take on the specialness of who we are in your eyes but it's true each and every person is fearfully and wonderfully made but they need to know that they need to know that and the only way they can know that is through Jesus Christ Lord in this place move and work let your Holy Spirit penetrate the hearts and the lives of those here to show them their true worth in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.